You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, well, last week in chapter one of Nehemiah, we were introduced to Nehemiah, who's the main character of the book and the narrator of most of the book. And, and Nehemiah's made aware that his homeland, Jerusalem, was in great trouble and despair, that his people were put to shame. And, and Nehemiah is a servant of the king in Persia, serving in the capital city of Susa. And, and when he hears this news about Jerusalem, we see that he's distraught and that he wants to help his people, but he knew that he needed the blessing and the grace of God and the blessing and the grace of the king, Artaxerxes, who's also called Darius and Ahasuerus throughout the book. And, and, and so what Nehemiah did prior to chapter 2, kind of in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, is he spends about three or four months praying and fasting, asking God for grace and for mercy, showing kind of an unbelievable amount of patience and trust in the Lord, preparing for this time where he will ask the king for his blessing to go back home and to rebuild the city. And so where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2 is after this moment. We're in the king's courts, in his inner rooms, and it says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And so this is the the moment that's been building up for months in the heart and in the mind of Nehemiah. And and it's unclear as to whether he's intentionally or unintentionally allowed the king to see his sorrow. Right, like Maybe maybe he's been trying to hide it, and he just can't hide it anymore because he's just over flowing with sorrow, or maybe he's decided, I'm going to show the king that I'm sad, that that this conversation might be catalyzed. But either way, the king saw him in his sadness, and he points it out, and Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. And this is a perfectly understandable thing if you understand anything of the gravity of the situation or anything of the relationship dynamic between a servant and his master. And so, so Nehemiah, even though he's terrified, and he's standing before the king in the king's rooms, what we see is that Nehemiah is kind and he is clear. He makes the reason for his displeasure known. The king asks for his request, and once again, we see that Nehemiah is a man of profound patience and faith, right? Even standing before the king, the king demanding an answer, a moment when anybody would be rushed to open their mouth, it says that Nehemiah stops to pray. I, I prayed then to the God of heaven. And after praying, he asks to be sent to the city of his father's graves that I may rebuild it. What a beautiful request that is, to refer to Jerusalem as the 
city of his father's graves. It's something that, that we should look, learn from. I, I pray that we are a church that would have the sort of heart that when we look at the wreckage in our society, the sinful and evil trappings that have deceived and killed our fathers, that we too would desire to leave the comforts and security that we have to do the work of faithful redemption. He doesn't want to go to Jerusalem because it's an appealing place to be, but it's because it's where his fathers have died. The text goes on, it says, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, and, and I won't go into detail here, but, but the queen is only mentioned because that queen is Esther. And, and so it's for the reader to remember, oh, there is a Jewish queen on the throne in Persia, and she's one who historically has acted in favor of the Jewish people when they are in distress. And so it's telling us the queen probably has an influence on the king's judgment here. And the king says, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass though through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. I want you to notice the order of importance for Nehemiah here because it's once again a place that we can learn from Nehemiah. He wants timber first to build the temple and then to restore the walls of the city and then and only then to build his own house. May our priorities be like Nehemiah's, that we would care first about the glory and grandeur of God, then the security of our peoples, and then ourselves. And it says, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So the king doesn't only give Nehemiah permission to go, he also gives him this authoritative blessing marked by these letters, which would tell all that Nehemiah is encountering, that he is acting under the authority of the king, that he is now the governor of Jerusalem, and that, that this is not only a, a mission of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem for the people of Israel, but that, that it's also something that the Persian Empire has a stake in, that, that the rebuilding of Jerusalem is now a, a decree of the king himself. And so Nehemiah is freed, and he's blessed to go with this blessing and authority of the king back to Jerusalem. And, and he's going to see the wreckage and to begin to build. But most importantly, after this huge exchange where Nehemiah has no doubt been anxious about this meeting with the king, this time that he would seek the king's favor, he doesn't end by saying, man, and look how gracious the king was. He says, for the hand of my God was upon me. For the hand of my God was upon me. This is a theme of Nehemiah's account of history. He's always quick to show that God is the one at work, even when people and governments and situations are, are the actors in that play, that God is the ultimate mover, that the glory belongs to God and not to Artaxerxes. He doesn't say, and so I convinced the king, look at me. Or, and so the king was benevolent and kind, look at him. Although both of those are true to a degree, right? He did convince the king, and the king was benevolent and kind, but the good hand of God was upon him. And so his efforts were blessed. 
And so this is the way that we also should view the world that we live in, that, that when good things happen in our society, that we should recognize that it is God's grace to his people and to the nations that good things have happened, and we should give him glory. We shouldn't seek to take the glory for ourselves when we're participants in redemption, nor should we give glory to kings and rulers when they are participants in redemption, but we should give glory to God. And what we'll see as we move on is this blessing to go, to go to Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the story. This isn't the end, right? The work is actually before Nehemiah. And I think we can draw from the way that Nehemiah is interpreting this and from the reality that the real work begins now on recent events. For decades, Christians in this country have prayed and advocated before our government officials to reverse the so-called right to kill unborn children. And in God's grace, because the good hand of God has been upon us, this edict has been removed. Right? That's what we've seen this past week. This, the court has ruled in favor of the justice and glory of God. And it's not because the court is so good or because people who put the the judges on the court are so good. And it's not even because God's people have prayed and advocated faithfully. It's because God has put his good hand upon us. But like the work of Nehemiah, the work of defending and supporting the life of father, mother, and child is in many ways only beginning for us. And so we, as God's people, have to be committed to go to the wreckage and to do the work of rebuilding, being a people of profound love and mercy and tenderness, all the while being thankful and full of praise for the goodness of God that he has allowed us to take this step, that he has given us favor in the eyes of worldly rulers. The work ahead is big. The government's approval of the work of God is only the beginning. And so now we have to go forth and assess the state of things, which is what Nehemiah is going to do. And we have to begin the work of building up good things of God among the brokenness in our society. So Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 10 say this. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now that the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, when, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard of this, it displeased them greatly that, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so here we meet two of the three primary antagonists in the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah. And these men are based upon their names and the regions that they're governing, they're almost certainly Jews who have assimilated into the Persian culture and now have gained power of peoples and regions, and they're displeased that Nehemiah would come to rebuild Jerusalem because it's a threat to their power and influence. Because if Jerusalem is great again, then they will not be so great, and they know that. And their character is condemned in that they were displeased. Why? Because someone was seeking the welfare of the people of Israel. These men would rather their Jewish brothers and sisters continue to suffer harm than to have their power removed. 
there's, there's no conflict in this moment, but we're introduced to the foreshadowing that these things are coming. And the text continues. It says, so I went to Jerusalem, I being Nehemiah, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or where I was going, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And so after settling in Jerusalem for a few days, Nehemiah takes this secret night journey to assess the state of things, which is a key step prior to any redemptive work, is assessing the state of the damage. He observes the gates and the walls and their disrepair. He finds that there are certain places that are in such bad shape that he has to get off of his animal if he's going to go through to, to see them because the gates have been broken down so badly. And so Nehemiah heard the reports of the destruction of Jerusalem from afar, but now he has come down to meet them. He's seeing them and experiencing them. He's come down to his people. He's observing the darkness, which is symbolized by the fact that this is a night journey, and there's repeated language of night and darkness and valleys. It's darkness because sin and exile has wrought it. It's darkness because God has judged his people and sent them away, but now Nehemiah knows that God has put restoration for Jerusalem in his heart. The time is coming, Nehemiah knows, when, when the things that are hidden in his heart will be brought to light, and this is often the case in the story of God, is that there are things hidden in the heart of God and his prophets that are then brought to light at the proper time, and the proper time is verses 17 and 18. It says, then I said to them, referring to the groups of people in the previous verse, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king that he had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So the chapter comes to a climax here. Let us build Nehemiah says. He says this to all the faithful Jews in his midst, all who God had chosen to do this work. And he says, let us build. Why? So that we may no longer suffer derision, which is a word that would maybe even be better translated as so, so that we may no longer be a reproach or a disgrace. And this, I think, is a really interesting reason. For Nehemiah to rebuild the city is to become the beautiful place that the prophets spoke of. It's to become this city that blesses the nations, where the fullness of the grace and glory of God pour forth, that is a beacon to all the nations of the holiness and beauty of God. It's to be a, 
a people marked by favor and holiness and charity. And as of now, Nehemiah says, they are a reproach. They are a disgraced people. And Nehemiah knows that God has promised them that there will be a day when his people will no longer be a disgrace, when instead they will, they will be the crown of his creation, a kingdom of priests. Like these are the promises of God. The prophet says that they will be a jewel in the hand of God himself. And so I imagine all the people hearing the words of Nehemiah in this moment and remembering the promises of God, remembering the things God spoke to Abraham and that he spoke through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they're, they're beginning to be moved by this vision of the city's great walls being rebuilt and how that in, in the prophets is a procession for the fullness of the consummation of God's kingdom. They're thinking, we are going to get to lay the groundwork for all of these promises to come to pass. This isn't for them simply a community cleanup project after a disaster. Right? This, is, this is a heavenly and divine endeavor for the people of Jerusalem. Because they are called to be the people that God has always desired for them to be. And that Jerusalem's glory is God's glory. And therefore, it's the glory of the world. So they say, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. 500 years after this story. Jerusalem had been, been rebuilt with bricks, and its temple had been rebuilt. And, and so there's bricks and timber building up Jerusalem. But the fullness of the promises of God about this new Jerusalem had not come to pass, most notably that all of those promises indicated that the people of Israel would be a people with a changed heart in whom the law of God dwelled in their hearts and from which holiness and grace and charity poured out. And it hadn't happened. For 500 years, it hadn't happened. And so God sent another leader to come down with the blessing and authority of the ruler. One who also would leave the comforts of his throne room. And he came, like Nehemiah, out of love for his people and out of sorrow for their shame and the trouble that they were in. The trouble that we were in. He came down and he inspected the walls and the gates of our hearts to see all the ways in which we had been broken down and destroyed by fire and how it had made us a disgrace among the peoples of the world and before God himself. And this leader desired for us to be a people marked wonderfully by grace, not to be marked by disgrace. He came speaking, not on his own authority, but like Nehemiah, on the authority of one greater than him, the Father, empowered by the words of the ruler. He was met like Nehemiah, by fellow Jews who hated his plans because they posed a threat to their authority and their power. And in a greater way than even Nehemiah, this, this leader, Jesus Christ, came down to meet us in our sorrow. More miraculously than Nehemiah, he spent three nights and then arose with a message for his people that was rooted in the promises and hopes of God. Nehemiah called his people to rise up and build, and Jesus told his father, followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you. Church, Jesus has become a reproach and has been disgraced in his death. The old Jerusalem has passed away with Christ at Calvary so that we can participate with him in being the glorious city of God's promises, a blessing to all the nations. He has risen so that we can join him in the resurrection work of rebuilding in the ruins of a world crushed by sin and all of its consequences. And so he is calling you today to rise up and build. The people in Nehemiah's day heard their leader and they strengthened their hands for good work. And over and over and over again in the Bible, what we see is that that strength for God's people comes from God, that he's the giver and provider of strength. And yet, over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see that God's people are called to gird up their loins and strengthen their hands for the work ahead of them. And so what that means is that if you've been united to Christ through faith, you have been saved for good works. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. And so God will be your strength in every moment. He will provide his spirit to you to, to be your wisdom and your encouragement and your comfort in everything that you need. And yet, there is a responsibility to rise up to the task. It's only done through faith and hope. See, the people who heard Nehemiah, they strengthened their hands for good works because they believed the promises. They believed that Jerusalem would once again be a great city and that it would be greater than it ever had been and that it would bless the nations. They believed that there would one day be a king who sat on an everlasting throne uh, administering justice and mercy to all who would come to him. And so they strengthened their hands. And so if you don't believe that Christ's vision for the redemption of the world through sacrificial love is compelling and true, if you don't believe that it's a beautiful vision, you will be unable to strengthen your hands for the good work. But if you do believe, if you do believe that God is making all things new through his resurrected king, then you will be compelled by the Spirit to act upon it to act upon it through the discipline of strengthening your hands to the task. This means being devoted to studying the scriptures, being devoted to praying regularly that God's kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. It means being devoted to participating in the disciplines of the faith, like fasting and mourning and communing with the saints. And we must strengthen our hands because making disciples is hard. Redeeming what is broken is hard. Our King Jesus has told us that the work is hard. He says that we'll suffer, that we will experience opposition and persecution, much like Nehemiah and his company of faithful Jews, and that we will grow weary. And so remember the promises that God has made to you in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the promises that God made to you in your baptism, that you have died with Christ and have been raised to new life. Remember the promises that God has made to you when we come and feast at his table, that he is nourishing us and strengthening us for the work ahead. We have to remember these things so that our hands might be fit to the task. The text completes itself when it says, 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, notice that, that as soon as God's people are ready to do the work, another enemy enters the scene. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah stands strong in the face of these enemies. They ask him if they're rebelling against the king. And he could have said, no, here are the letters I have from the king. But instead he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He hopes not in kings and chariots, but he hopes in the Lord our God. And we, his servants, will arise and build. And then he says, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. These are Jews that he's talking to. Church, if we gird our loins, if we strive in faith, to build up the city of God. There will be enemies. Satan and all of his children will come. But we can stand strong, knowing that the God of heaven will make his people prosper. The God of heaven will make his people prosper and that those who despise the work of God will have no place in the city of God. God is building a great city, the church, and, and this great city will unite heaven and earth under the decree and efficacious work of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the King of kings, the ruler of everything. And this, this great city will bless the nations, and it will be blessed by God for all of eternity. And to hate the things that God is building, the work that his spirit is empowering his people to do is a dangerous thing. Jesus himself would say that it's an unforgivable thing. And there will be a day when the walls of God's people are built up in full and the scoffers will stand outside the gates, gazing inward at the glorious grace and fulfillment of the promises of God. See Jesus' parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But church, we can endure the scoffers. We can endure the attacks remembering that Jesus has conquered all of our enemies in his death and resurrection and that he will surely be with us into the end of the age and that he said this to us, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets were opposed because the people loved the darkness. But church, the light of life has come. The light of life has come in Jesus Christ, and he has made us to be light in the world, a city on a hill. So let us rise up and build the city of God and strengthen our hands for the work ahead. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you. We thank you and praise you for the ways that, that at times we can see the work of your redemption moving forward, often slower than we would like, more incrementally than, than we would hope for, but, but we can see it nevertheless, and so we praise you for it, and we ask that you would strengthen us, your people, through faith in your promises, through hope in your Son and his steadfastness and his victory, would you build us up to be a people who can build the world around us up, to make 
heaven a reality on earth through your wonderful grace, through the power of your spirit, through the work of your son. Would you draw our hearts near to you, transform us into your likeness, and build us up? Would you communicate your promises to us this morning that we might be built up as we come to your table? 